As you do, please uh, join me in Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, verse 2, will be our primary text in particular, uh, the first portion of that uh, verse. Um, My name is Jason. I serve as one of the elders here at Church in the Square. It's always good uh, to get to open up God's Word together. Thank you, Sarah, JJ, Reese, and Emma for leading us uh, this morning in song. Today we need to talk about fear, and um, what is often the case is that, at least for me personally, (laughs) uh, I can be really blinded by the sermon and miss the word, if that makes sense. So like the work of producing the manuscript, this like these pages trying to communicate to me all week. And by trying to communicate, I don't mean that the Lord is attempting something that he hopes work. I mean that I just don't often have the ears to hear and the eyes to see. Uh, His attempts are not because of his failings, but because of mine. And so we need to to talk about fear because fear is really, really tricky. And today what the Apostle Paul is going to tell us in uh, chapter 12, verse 2, he's going to say, do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And I'm here to testify today, if you will, if you let me in the old school preacher way. Simply say, I think that the way the world wants to conform you is almost always with fear. Almost always with fear. The only reason I'm not going to say always is because I've just learned this week how limited I am, so there may be something else. I just, But everything I've experienced says that fear is the way that this world wants to guide, direct, and shape you. And I've experienced that this week, and but for the grace and kindness of God, I've been woken up to that. Uh, And it wasn't the first time. And that's what's so frustrating, right? So frustrating, like, I thought I learned this lesson, like, when I was in high school. Like, I thought I had it on lock then. And then I thought again in college. And then I thought again in that season of life, and with that person, with that person. It just seems like I don't... I don't know, maybe this is just, I just keep having to learn the same thing over and over again. Fear not, trust the Lord. Fear not, trust the Lord. This is like this constancy of what I believe that the Lord has been teaching me and I hope teaching us uh, continually. But I think fear is the thing. And fear is really tricky because uh, I think a lot of times when we think about fear, we say, well, I'm not afraid. And here are the things that maybe people are generally afraid of. But when we really boil it down, fear is a failure to trust in God's love. Fear is a failure to trust in God's love. And I think that happens all the time. So fear is not just I can't sleep at night because of a sound outside and because my neighbors are wiling out and I'm not sure where that's going to lead. To hold it together in this relationship. I'm not sure if who I am is enough for the task before me. I'm not sure if I'm safe in this community, or in this friendship. That's all fear. Fear is woven through all of the ways I think that the world is trying to get you, trying to actuate you, stir you to action, to do something, to shape your worship, and it can be very confusing and deceptive at times, but this is, I believe, the way that the world works. Now, to understand, what are we talking about when we say the world, right? Because that's been used a lot in religion. The big, bad, scary world out there is going to get you unless you show up, you tithe, you take communion properly, right? And sort of safeguard yourself with religiosity. But this is not what Jesus says protects you. 
What, what does he say drives out fear? Love. So, so the more familiar I am, the more I believe God's love, the less I will not recognize fear and the, the more I'll be able to uh, address it. The more I'll be able and willing, if you will, to address fear in my life. And so we need to move through a couple of things in this verse together. I think in order, in that spirit, to really get at what are we afraid of and how does the love of Jesus force it out? Are you tracking with me? So many of us are like, um, <laughs> we're all afraid. We're all afraid of something, right? And we all look to something to help satiate or satisfy that fear. It shows up in a lot of ways, and I hope to be responsible in helping all of us identify an aspect of fear that shows up in our life. Um, and it, and, it, and in, do, in doing that and coming to God's word through that, see how is it the, the love of God actually tells me the truth about the world, but then also satisfies the longing I'm chasing to be satisfied from somewhere else. And so that, we'll, we'll attempt to do that by organizing our time around that idea of this world, trying to identify that first. Because if we don't know what Paul is talking about when he says this world, we'll come up with all kinds of crazy solutions for our fear, which I think the world would love that, right? Um, and so in order to do that, uh, we'll walk through three different things. The nature of this world, or what does this world mean? And then we'll look at the to the pattern of this world. And then third, the hope in this world, or what does it mean to be transformed by the renewal of our minds? So we'll look at the nature, the power, and then the hope. Sound good? Let's ask for God's help. But Father, I'm scared because ultimately I just want people to love me. And there's a lot of people here that I love. <laughs> and it's hard often to walk through the scriptures together. It can be kind of scary because we get exposed and it's not really easy to just say, give me the three things I'm supposed to do this week to make God happy and keep my life in order. There's surrender. Paul has just told us in verse 1 that we're supposed to offer our lives as a living sacrifice unto you. And so I pray you'd help us to get a little bit uh, clear on what that means. If that means confessing sin, Father, would we do that expediently, quickly? If it means resting, in something that we just don't trust, help us, Father, to learn where those trust issues come from or those hesitancies to simply have faith that you're a good and loving God who takes care of his people. So often I know that can be the case for, uh, for me, to just know that you're good and you're, you've got this and you're going to take care of me. You're going to take care of my church family, my brothers and sisters, my community, my family. And so would you center us on that? We've sung a lot about this already today. Your spirit has pr prepared us to hear this word. And so help us to simply be recept receptive, submissive, and joyful in our response to your word today. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So what are we talking about when we talk about this world? Because is, I think this is another way that the world sort of leaks into religion is that probably few people have misused this term more than Christians. This, this world, I'll let uh, the great preacher, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, give us some guidance here because I cannot improve upon his organization of this idea. And he took a year to preach through Romans 12. Um, and so I think he took a lot of time considering uh, the great Welsh preacher to do so when he uh, was alive in 65 on into 66. And in his mind, when the Apostle Paul or other New Testament writers talk about this world, they have a, they have a few things in mind. They have at least three things in mind. They're talking about life apart from God, they're talking about life after the fall, and they're talking about life in the flesh. So they're talking about life apart from God, after the fall, and in the flesh. What, is, what does all of that mean? Um, 
First of all, life uh, apart from God. Lloyd-Jones says that by world, the New Testament means life as it is thought of, organized, and lived apart from God, without reckoning God, without being governed and controlled by Him. So he's saying there is a way to live which gives no consideration to God. We don't think about Him. We are not mindful of Him. We do not pray to Him. Therefore, we don't submit to His way or His will because we don't know it. We don't go to His Word. We're not mindful of His Word. And I think it's easy in this moment to go, oh, you're talking about atheists. No, we're talking about anyone, any day, who wakes up and simply considers their own invisible inclinations, their own cognition, the wisdom of the world, and their favorite podcast as the thing that helps them make decisions and not the God of the universe and the God of the Bible. In fact, author David Tripp warns that we can all live like what he calls functional atheists. He says, we believe that God exists, that he created the heavens and the earth, that the Bible is accurate, and that paradise awaits, but we often live at a functional level as if there is no God. In other words, you get one of those old school scantrons that you used to take in high school. You fill in all the right bubbles. God exists. He made heavens and earth. Adam and Eve, that's a thing. Sin's a thing. God rose from the dead, right? But what is your life like when you wake up? Who controls your joy? Who tells you what you're supposed to do with your schedule? I don't care how organized and color-coded it is. Who has control of your calendar? Who can interrupt you? This is what it means to be a functional atheist. Only what I say goes. world, then, when, when Paul says that, he's talking about a life that lives as if God is not real. As if God is not real. This is this is why this is why we're all susceptible. This is why it's a deception. It's sneaky, right? You could gather today and tomorrow wake up like God isn't real. I I can do that. You could have lunch in just a couple of hours and just act like he's not real, right? This is how tricky this is. Second, this world is about life after the fall. The fall is the moment in history and in Scripture when Adam and Eve, our first parents, the first human beings, sinned. It's recorded in Genesis chapter 3. They reject God's good world on his terms, and they welcomed in a world of brokenness and all kind of catastrophic problems. We're told that their fall leads to the fall of all human beings. We we looked at this in Romans chapter 5. Sin came into the world, Paul said, through one man. That is through Adam, through Adam and Eve, our first parents. That's what it means when we talk about the fall. Now, Lloyd-Jones describes this as an aspect of ultimately, of Satan's control over this world. While this means many things, sin, shame, fear, destruction, and so on, Lloyd-Jones draws our attention to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Here's what it says in verses 3 and 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the hearts of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel or the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So the one who Paul calls the God of this world, which is not the only place in the scripture he's described as such, is Satan. He blinds minds. He blinds people's ability to see the light. He shields them from understanding and trusting in God and knowing themselves in view of the gospel. Now, this is for many of us very hard to accept in a modern world, that there is this sort of spiritual villain who we are supposed to believe, terrorizes people and controls certain world events. Famously, uh, French writer 
Charles Bordelais, said that one of the artifices, another perhaps equal, equally fatal, is uh, to make them fancy that he is obligated or obliged to stand quietly by and not to meddle with them. In other words, what Bordelais is, is identifying in, in his literature is that Satan wants you to think either he doesn't exist or if he does exist, he doesn't mess with me. He doesn't mess with us. He's sort of just there as some sort of like caricature of spirituality. This, but this is what he does. He would love for you to believe that. C.S. Lewis in his wonderful book, The Screwtape Letters, this is what the demon world was all about. Convincing God's people that Satan, if he is real, really doesn't engage them, really has no control. Which leads us to all kinds of folly, like sin, shame, fear, all of these things that he can manipulate and use against us. Now, this is why it's tricky, because when we read the scriptures, we realize Satan is a defeated foe. He can't just do whatever he wants, but he is still an effective one. He's a defeated foe, he has limits, but he still has influence and power in this world. And one of the things I love about my church family, there are some of you who are so keen on keeping a vision on the spiritual world where I'm thinking like, we've got to make this decision and think through this and I'm worried about this. And he's like, I think that's Satan talking to you. I was like, whoa, that that really got to extreme, right? But it's so easy to go through our day and do the same thing with Satan as we do with God, act like he doesn't exist and simply work through the world as if it's about my decisions and that the foolishness and frustrations and challenges that we face are not about a dark and present evil age that is at work among us. This is what led the writer to say in the New Testament, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, spiritual realm of this dark and evil age. Because Satan is real and he is at work, but this world lives as if Satan is not real and considers it a scientific fact that these things don't exist and certainly not this person. Thirdly, Lloyd-Jones points out that this world is about life in the flesh. We also consider this in Romans chapter 8, of how we remember our loves. And in the flesh and in the spirit, in 8.5, there are two ways that we cherish very differently. Paul says in Romans 8.5, there are two ways to live. Those who live according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set their mind on the things of the spirit. Life according to the, the, the flesh is a life which loves this world, what this world offers, and what this world loves. We're obsessed with what everybody else is obsessed with. You couldn't tell a difference between what we love and what the world at large loves because we love the same thing. In fact, on one of his journeys and work, Paul was abandoned by a guy named Demas. This is the only place in the Bible where Demas is mentioned. And do you know what 2 Timothy 4 says about him? It says that Demas Demas deserted Paul because he fell in love with this present world. That's the only thing we know about him, is that he loved the world. That's hard. That's a hard legacy, right? And yet, isn't this a legacy we participate in every day? We love this world. Life in the flesh and in this world centers then on self comforts, our dreams, our longings, and our feelings. It is a life in which virtue, love, beauty, truth are all ultimately determined by myself and my society. In other words, we are the Lord's unto ourselves. This world lives as if, in other words, truth doesn't exist. Blindness or a spiritual deception 
It's living as if God is not real. It's living as if Satan is not real. It's living as if truth is not real, that it is relative to my consciousness and my disposition. Now, this is what we're talking about when we talk about this world. Now, why would we need to spend so much time getting clear about what this world actually is? Well, because our worship is being shaped every single day by this world, and we don't even see it. I know I don't. I often miss this. I missed it this week. See, that's the nature. So what's the power? What power does this world possess? See, Paul doesn't simply say this world exists, and God exists, and Satan exists, and truth exists. He warns us, what does he say? To not be conformed by this world. In other words, this world is not merely an idea, but a force with an agenda. Specifically, I believe, to shape your worship, to shape my worship. Look at it again, Romans 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. It says, do not be conformed. Do not be deceived by the lies about doing life as if God, Satan, and truth do not exist. Our friend, who I hope we all got well acquainted with during our study on the Sabbath, Marva Don has written extensively on Romans 12, to which I rejoice so I can read another book that she has written. And in considering the power of this world, she explains that the idea of conform is to form or mold our behavior in accordance with a particular set of standards, a particular set of patterns. This world then seeks to form you, make you, and shape you in its own image. Paul wants us to see this and not let it happen. Not let it happen. To be aware of it, to be, a, to be wakeful about it, and to resist it. In fact, the tense in the Greek uh, text here stresses that this is not just a one-time thing. Wouldn't it be great if it was a one-time thing? Just resist it once, and it, therefore it's never going to be a problem for you again. If you've been tracking with Jesus for more than 30 seconds, you realize that that's not the case, right? That in fact, even this Greek text, the language with which Paul is choosing and selecting, communicates that this is an ongoing rebellion against the powers of this world. I hope you actually find that really encouraging, right? Why should that be encouraging? Well, you're not alone, all of us are trying to battle this every single... This is what I love the church, especially in a city like Chicago that just says, I need the floor. reminded that as I drop my kids off to school, learn to make a living, as I learn to navigate the principalities and the context and the society of a city like Chicago, ton of Midwest kids from all over the world, like descending on this place. Some have grew up here. Some, this wonderful cornucopia of people. I need to be reminded all the time I'm not alone. I'm not alone. That you may not find another ally in your spiritual formation anywhere else but the church and the people of God who are seeking to live as strangers among a people, strangers in a strange land, the scriptures teach us, who are daily battling against the powers of this world. Not in a fearful sense of freaking out all the time, but just going, this is really hard. It's hard to keep being honest, isn't it? It's hard to not be swayed by money with every decision that you make. It's hard to submit to the God of the Bible when it seems like everyone else around us is submitting to another God. It's hard. This is why Paul says, don't be conformed. Don't be conformed by this world, but be transformed. 
This is ongoing rebellion. See, we believe, I think, ultimately, where that fear comes from is I think that we believe that good Christians don't struggle as much as others. Good Christians, like, really have it together, and they may, like, grow through one thing once, but it's always up to the right, right? It's always an ascending, I'm getting better and better. The closer to Jesus I become, the less and less sin. But in truth, here's what actually happens. The closer you get to Jesus, the more you realize you are not like him, right? Have you ever noticed that the closer you get to somebody, the more you discover about them, and the more you discover about yourself, too, And so think about that. Like the illustration with a light, far from a light, a dirty garment looks clean. You get that mug close to that light, you're like, whoa, I better go back through the wash. So this, this wonderful idea that we've talked about a lot, that maturing in Jesus is not about increasing independence, it's, it's increasing dependency. The more and less sin, it looks like more and more trust. More and more trust. This is what led the Puritan preacher John Owen to say, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. This is a daily, constant battle. Or in our language of our investigation today, be transformed in Christ's image in this world or you will be transformed into the world's image. So how does this happen? How does the world continue to conform us? Because we must be wise. We must understand The power of this world, I think, is ultimately deception and fear. We've hopefully made that clear. Those are, I think, the exact tactics that Satan has been using since the very beginning. If you remember in the garden with Adam and Eve, what does Satan do first? He questions the word of God. He begins to sow seeds of deception. Is that really what God said? That's the first thing he says. And then as soon as like Adam and Eve are kind of wrestling, what does Adam say? Or what does rather Satan say? Oh, God doesn't want you to be like him. He knows if you eat that, you're going to know all the things that he knows. So he starts with deception, and then he causes fear, right? You're missing out. You're missing out. Satan never whispered that lie to you. Oh, you're missing out. You're missing out. You keep acting like that, you're going to miss all the cool parties. All the cool people are going to know you're not going to be invited to their stuff anymore because, wow. Satan still does this thing. Here's Here's the wonderful thing. Satan is a punk, but he never changes his ways. He's always doing the exact same thing. He's causing deception and he's causing fear. Causing deception and he's causing fear. There are these specific ways that he lies that God, that ultimately God, that even himself and that truth don't exist. And they practically express themselves and we conform to them. They seek to shape our worship, to center our worship in something or anything else rather than God. First John chapter 2 gives us some clarity about what this ultimately looks like. The apostle John saw a love for this world as central to being conformed by this world. In in other words, we are shaped by what we love. Or as St. Clair of Assisi wrote, we become what we love. This is what John understood. And so he warned his father, uh, rather the love of the father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the father, but is from the world. John says, when we love the world, we are wrapped up in the desires of pleasure, of what uh, someone else's life may look like, and really a desire for possessions. These are the three things he lays out. I just want my needs to be met. I want my, my desires, my longings to be met. I look at someone else's life and I go, that looks really nice. And I desire stuff. I believe that things will make me feel better. So the power of this world 
is to use fear and deception to woo you to love it. And it does these by promising something very specific. And here's where we need to get keen on this deception and this fear. It makes very specific promises to satisfy certain urges, certain longings. See, in one measure, John is writing about three different desires. In another way, though, he's really just talking about one thing. He's talking about this world promising to meet your deepest desires. That's the issue. That's the lie. That's the power of this world. When we love the world, we trust that this world can be true to its word. We trust that this world can satisfy our deepest desires. When we are deceived into believing that God, Satan, and the truth don't exist, then we are blinded to even have any faculty or response or rebellion to that power. We don't question our desires. We seek only to satisfy them. I think that's the way of the world. That's how we are conformed to the world. I fear that if my desire is not met, I'm going to lose something precious. world for making that promise. Love it. This is what begins to affect our worship. I hope you can see now, if I start looking to the world to satisfy my longings, I give it my affection and my love. I may sing some songs on Sunday, but I worship something else. Something else is the centerpiece of my life. Let me give us a few examples to hopefully tease it out and then share how the Lord really made it clear I was not believing this this week. So you see, whatever or whoever gives us satisfaction gets our praise. Whoever gives us satisfaction gets our praise. Politics shape our worship because our favorite candidates, what do they do? They promise to meet our desires for control and a preferred future. Right? The midterms are right. This is exactly what is going on. What is your preferred future? I'll make that promise. Vote for me. Money shapes our worship because it promises to satisfy our desires of comfort, pleasure, and safety. Religion shapes our worship because it promises to satisfy our desires for order and specialness. Brands shape our worship because they promise to satisfy our desires for beauty and acceptance. Education shapes our worship because it promises to satisfy our desires for wisdom and understanding and intellect. Families friendship, and our various tribes and communities shape our worship because they promise to satisfy our desires to be loved and to belong. Work shapes our worship because it promises to satisfy our desires to be important, to have meaning and value. And this week I realized uh, one of the places that I look for protection is from you. I found out in a fresh way this week that I really feel safe as a pastor, which is really very uncommon these days. <laughs> um, and I don't mean that tritely. I, I mean it, I think that right now the Christian community is having a reckoning about what it means to trust one another. And one of the things that I discovered this week is I have put way too much pressure on you to protect me because you can't. It's begun to shape my worship. I've worshipped a community. I, I have looked to the well-being and my relationships within this community to satisfy my soul in a way that the scriptures say only that the Lord God in heaven can. And that's not fair. That's not okay. And that is a deception, and it's all driven by fear. What's my fear? I'm fear I won't be loved. I'm not worthy of relation. I'm fearful that you're going to find out that I'm actually not worthy of trust, that I'm not worthy of relationship that I'm not worthy of you showing up here and being a part of my church family or our church family. All those things are running all the time. And so what, what I have done 
is to put you all in a place that only God belongs. That is not okay. It's a strange relationship between a preacher and a congregation. It's a strange relationship. We can unfortunately trust each other way too much and not trust the Lord to give us guidance and clarity and foundation and His faithfulness and His trustworthiness. See, whatever we trust to satisfy our deepest desires, we worship. And I have trusted you all. And I was kind of a mess this week about it. In God's kindness, my wife said, man, you better, you better search that out. <laughs> you better call your counselor. And she and I sat with our counselor this week and exposed it. I need to learn to trust the Lord for things that he can provide. It doesn't mean that you're not trustworthy or that I shouldn't be. It means that ultimately you are not worthy of my worship and I am not worthy of yours. <clears throat> See, we've just been instructed in Romans 12:1, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. See, or we're meant to worship God because of his great mercy. We were made to worship, but whatever and whoever we trust to give us satisfaction gets our praise. So my brothers and sisters, we are often deceived in this, and it's killing us. We're being conformed by this world through fear, Fear of abandonment, fear of isolated, fear of being single, fear of being childless. All driven by all of these narratives that preach to us satisfaction through the week are all driven by fear. And God doesn't work that way. We're always being discipled. Everything shapes our worship. Everything disciples us. And this world's tactic for discipleship is always, always, always fear. So if you are scared, that is not God. If you are being manipulated, that is not God. He doesn't need to coerce anybody. He's God. He doesn't have to trick you. He's worthy of something. You only have to be tricked when someone knows they're not worthy. They have to deceive you. They know they have to deceive you. God doesn't. That's what we have to talk about next. See, the nature of this world is deception, that God, Satan, truth are not real. The power of this world is fear, and it's aimed at your heart. What hope do we have over this power? The best way to not be conformed by this world is to be transformed into Christ. It's to be transformed into Christ. See, the best way to know your beloved's voice is to spend time with your beloved, not get to know all of the other voices in the world. It's to spend time with the one who loves you. Then you know the difference between a truth and a lie. It's to become more like Jesus. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. The word Paul uses, it means transformed, is the Greek word metamorpho. It's where we get our word metamorphosis. It means to change, a drastic change. And the only other place that Paul uses this word is in his letter to the church in Corinth. A place where a great deal of worldliness and love of this world was going on. A place a lot like Chicago, to be straight with you. A place that you and I can often relate to. If, if not especially in the church. 2 Corinthians uh, 3.18 says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, and being transformed into the who is the Spirit. This is really good. This is really helpful for us to clear. See, notice first and foremost, the transformation is into the image. That's the image of Jesus Christ. We are not meant to be shaped into the image of this world, 
by fear, but we are meant to be shaped into the image of Christ through love. Notice further, transformation takes place when two things happen. Paul says what? You're with unveiled faces, behold the glory of God. Two things, let me preach them to you for just a second. Your face needs to be unveiled. My face needs to be unveiled. In other words, we are blinded by this world. We are blinded by what this world loves. We are blinded by the fear that this world uses to love the things that it loves. But thanks be to God, he will unveil your face. This is what 2 Corinthians is teaching us. This is something which happens to us. This is a gift. We are not the ones that have to work hard tomorrow to unveil our faces and make our blind eyes see. It's like that couple on the road to Emmaus. The scripture tells us that their eyes were opened, not that they opened their eyes. They walked with Jesus all the way home. They didn't recognize him. They didn't know who he was. Why? They were blinded to the truth. And then Jesus opened their eyes. So the prayer for us is not, God, help me to open my eyes, but God, would you open them? Help me to see what I can on my own. Help me to discern when my life is being driven by fear and not by your love. Second, we need to look to the Lord. Notice it doesn't just say that your, your eyes or your face is unveiled, but it, it takes place only when we are beholding the glory of the Lord. We become what we love. We become what we adore. We become what we behold, what we worship. Similarly, we do not simply behold Jesus on our own. This too is a grace. We don't behold what has not been revealed to us. And John 1.18 tells us no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, but what? He has made him known. In other words, no matter what you do, what you think, you can't figure out God on your own, and neither can I. But he is a gracious God who reveals himself to people and says, this is who I am about my world. And this too is an ongoing process. It's in the same tense. We are transformed daily. Specifically, Paul tells us that our minds must be renewed in order for us to be transformed. In other words, our thinking, our understanding and our level of our heart. See, this isn't just about my intellectual ascent. This is about still that language of whole life that Paul was talking about in verse 1. That our whole life needs to be renewed. What we think, what we love, how we move and have our being. Our minds are renewed when the power of the Spirit helps us to discern the difference between a truth and a lie, between love and fear. Practically speaking, these are a lot of really important things, but we should always ask, what does that even look like? What does it look like to begin to have those eyes to see, those ears to hear, to discern the difference between a truth and a lie, fear and love? I want to offer you one thing. Interrogate your desires interrogate your desires. Put them on trial to the glory of God. Real love and worship responds to mercy, not emotional and physical gratification. Therefore, we can be safe and interrogate our feelings, not because we are unworthy, but because we want to know the truth. See, the Christian asks, when I got a feeling, a ton of, when something's pulsating in my body, I, I ask, I am supposed to ask, we are supposed to ask a ton of questions. Is that desire from the Lord? Will this desire fulfilled glorify God or me or someone else? Did Jesus wrestle with this this desire? How did he face it? What does my church family think about this desire? When was the last time you brought a desire to your group and just go, I have this feeling, what do I do with it? 
Not, I have this feeling, therefore it justifies what I already did. So, you guys good with that? You see the difference? What fears are motivating these feelings? What lies am I... Do you see what I mean by interrogate it? We too quickly move from desire to fulfillment. We just seek for it to be satisfied. Instead of what the scriptures say, test the spirits. Is that from the Lord or is that just all about me? This is what I think I failed to do this week. Instead of having a feeling that I just put on trial, what is that? Where is that from? I was like, ah, I got to figure this. I just need this satisfied. I need some satisfaction. I know, I'll start blaming people in my head. Right? You ever done that? I've already had conversations with so many people about this in my head. I don't need to talk to them because I've already figured it out by myself. This is not a great place to be. And, and I only bring things into the light when I'm not afraid. I'll bring a feeling into the light if I'm not afraid. But if I'm being driven by fear, I don't want anybody to know about it. Because one, I might be ashamed that I have that feeling. Or they're going to tell me I can't have it and I want it. In one of the first scenes of John's biography of Jesus, John the baptizer shows up as he's prone to do, and he's just really loud. And he sees Jesus, and he yells at a bunch of people, behold the Lamb of God, right? You remember this scene? And he essentially is saying what the Apostle Paul was writing about in 2 Corinthians. Open your eyes. Look, this is Jesus. Open your eyes. See who it is, right? Jesus notices that two men start following him. Right, this is a scene in John's gospel where Jesus is beginning to collect his first disciples. And so you might think, oh, dope, Jesus has now two new trainees that he can start putting a part of his team. But instead, Jesus asks a question. He says, what are you seeking? What do you want? That word means, what do you desire? Do you notice Jesus didn't just take their followership as a awesome. I'm just trying to build a kingdom. I just want more people here. I don't want to like scare the first two followers because those are really important. I know following dynamics. I know group dynamics and community. The first follower is important, right? Instead, he goes, why are you here? What's more, if we race ahead to the conclusion of John's gospel, you'll be shocked to know his last question. He looks at that group of disciples that now he has been building and he asks this simple question in John 21, 17. Do you love me? you love me? Isn't this the question of the Christian life? After all they'd been through, after all Jesus had taught them, there's bookends to John's gospel. They're questions of desire and love, and they're both centered on worship. Why are you here? What do you desire? Do you love him? See, the beauty of these bookends is what is situated in the middle of them. Lesson after lesson, truth after truth, fear confronted after fear confronted, reminder after reminder, story after story, not about humanity's love for God, but about God's love for humanity in the midst of their deception and fear. The Son of God's invitation then to love him comes within the context of him demonstrating his cosmic love for you. The Son of God's invitation to be transformed comes within the context of his eternal transformation, his incarnation. See, Jesus came and he was confronted by this world and he wasn't conformed by it. He was transformed in the midst of it and now by grace and his love and truth can make you new as well. 
In other words, fear is not going to have the last word in your story. His love is. His perfect love is going to drive out fear. The nature of this world is deception. That God, Satan, and truth don't exist. The power in this world is fear and it's aimed at your heart. But the hope that we have in this world is the incarnation. The love and truth have come in the flesh to transform you and me that the whole world might be transformed into the kingdom of God. We look forward to that day where there will be no more fear. Help us to trust that. Help us to build our lives on that truth so that we might more and more become a people that you're going to present to yourself one day a bride, pure, spotless and clean. And between now and then, we know it's going to be hard. It'll be messy. We're going to have to confront a lot of fears, a lot of impulses to be conformed to the patterns of this world, to love what the world loves. But would you give us eyes to see? Would you unveil our faces so we can see the truth? I pray for my sisters and brothers who tomorrow or today are going to be confronted with a new impulse to fear and to invest in a different kind of worship. A worship that will ultimately take more than it will ever give. And I pray that instead of being conformed, Father, you would empower us to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. That we would see rightly God and even the powers of this evil age and your truth revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ, and that that love would give us hope, that love would give us strength, that love would help us to discern the difference between your goodness and the fears of this world, between your truth and the deceptions of the evil one. We pray all of this for your glory, our good, in Jesus' name, amen.